Josh for filling in. Because to be without a sound man would be so horrible. It's always awkward when half the church leaves when it's time to get up and preach. Sunday we saw that Jesus provides... Uh, Jesus is the one who provided for the people, and he, he did an impossible thing. He wants to do that which is impossible. Yesterday, we saw that Jesus gives rest. He needed rest. He provided rest for the disciples as they were struggling in that boat. He wants to give us rest. Today, we're going to see that Jesus gives us hope. So turn, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11, if you're not already there. John chapter 11. And let's have a word of prayer before we dig in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that no matter how many times we read through it, no matter how many times we uh, revisit a certain passage, that that you speak afresh to us. Lord, that's what we need today. We need you to speak afresh to us so we might learn and we might grow. Uh, So, Father, I ask that you would... Uh, clear my mind, give me, uh, give me help as I speak, that you would use your spirit to impact our lives as we hear from you today, that we might uh, be more conformed to your son as a result of us. Of us. So Lord, we ask that in all that uh, is said this morning, it be honoring to you. Guide our thoughts, guide my words in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 11 will begin in verse number 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Then now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. We're going to stop there for a moment. Uh, The sermon title this morning is Jesus Loves. And it comes from verses 3 and and 5. In verse 3, we see this note coming to Jesus from the sister saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it's going to be a two-parter. We'll finish it. Tomorrow, So uh, if you're thinking we're going to get all the way through chapter 11, that's not happening. So far, the miracles of Jesus in in the Gospel of John involving someone's well-being all happened before before Jesus had actually interacted with them. And what I mean by that is 
Jesus did not interact personally with the people whom he healed. Like we mentioned earlier, the, the official son who, uh, who was very ill, and the, the official traveled to find Jesus, and Jesus said, go ahead, turn around, go home, because he's fine. Jesus had not interacted with that man before. Uh, Jesus was not uh, in, even in, in his town. Um, think about the paralytic in chapter 5. We referenced him as well. He had been crippled for decades, for 38 years, the Scripture tells us. And as far as we know, Jesus had never interacted with this person before, uh, but he sees him there, he's crippled, and says, do you want to be healed? And Yeah, I want to be healed. And he says, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And Jesus gets in trouble for that because it was the Sabbath. But anyway, he heals someone, but really had had no previous interaction with him. In chapter 9, the man born blind uh, another fantastic chapter to go through. Uh, I, one of them I toyed with actually preaching this week. Uh, we, we have this man who had been born blind, and Jesus comes to him and, and offers to give him sight. Yes, he, he puts some mud on his eyes and says, go wash, and you can see. And, and by the end of the chapter, the blind man is telling the Pharisees, well, do you want to believe him too? Because you keep asking all these questions about the guy that came and, and healed me. It seems like you believe him and want to follow him too. Jesus had no interaction with that blind man prior to uh, actually healing him. But in this situation, in this situation, it's very different. Jesus not only knew Lazarus and Mary and Martha, the scriptures say that Jesus loved them. There are different degrees of love. We know that. Uh, there's the, the intimate love of a husband and wife. Clearly, this is not that. And then on the other extreme, there's the, the casual love that you would have for, uh, for your neighbor or for a, uh, an acquaintance. It's, it is a form of caring. We care for our neighbors. We care for our coworkers. Uh, but, but it's kind of shallow. Uh, and this isn't that love either. Uh, we're somewhere in between that. Uh, John uses two different Greek words here to describe how Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's, it's phileo and it's agape. And for those of you who are Greek nerds and saying I'm saying them wrong, I don't care. I'm anglicizing them. We speak English. It's okay. Phileo and agape. Phileo would be that brotherly love, that, that deep concern for someone. That agape would be a sacrificial love that would do anything for someone for their good. Uh, it may not be nice, it may not be fun, but it's for their good. You would do anything for their good. So the, you put these two together, and you have a heartfelt compassion, concern, affection. The kind of love that would just drop everything when there's a problem. And Lazarus has a problem. He's very ill. I'm sure you have people in your life that... Either you would drop everything for them and or someone who would drop everything for you. I remember a couple years ago, a pastor friend of mine was, was struggling. And uh, every once in a while, he'd send me a text, pray for me. Uh, and and we'd, we'd converse and I'd pray for him. And there was this one morning that, that he texted and said, man, I'm really struggling today. Would you pray for me? So I called him up and said, I will see you at coffee in two hours. Two hours because that's how long it took to get there. It was the most expensive cup of coffee I've had ever because uh, a lot of gas money wrapped into that too. Uh, but I, I rearranged my schedule, just did what I needed to do to go and, and help him because he was ready to quit. He was ready to, to not be a pastor anymore because of what was going on at that particular moment. And uh, we need friends like that. We need to be friends like that. 
Jesus was that kind of friend for Lazarus. But what does he do? He stays. Our first point today is that Jesus' love does not prevent tragedy. We would like to think that uh, when our closest friends have trouble, that, that we would be there as soon as we could. I mean, I'd like to think that I'm that kind of friend. That I would just drop everything and go and fix whatever needs to be fixed. Now, I don't have the capacity to fix everything, but Jesus does. Jesus had the capacity to go there and to make Lazarus well. But His love for Lazarus did not stop this tragedy. If you look through our passage, verse 1 just very succinctly introduces our main characters. It tells us that it's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And then verse 2 clarifies which Mary. It's the Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet. Remember, John is the last of the Gospels to be written. And in the other Gospels, at least two of them refer directly to this Mary who uh, anointed Jesus uh, with an expensive ointment. Now, we're going to look at that on Thursday. Uh, in John's Gospel, that comes later. So in, in just one small verse, he can clarify which Mary. Why? Because everyone already knew. Uh, if I were to tell you, today we're going to be in John chapter 11, and John chapter 11 is about the resurrection of Lazarus, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about, right? If I said we're going to be in John chapter 3, and John chapter 3 is about Nicodemus, you'd know exactly what I was talking about. I wouldn't have to give any more details. So why preach out of chapter 11? Well, <laughs> that's okay. There's more, always more details for us to find out there. There are certain events in the Bible that are just seared into our minds. And that's what John is referencing here in saying that this is uh, the Mary that did that act of worship. Jesus oftentimes tells people significant truths, very significant, profound, theologically deep implications in very short, short uh, moments. We see that in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He's being prophetic here, not pathetic, prophetic. He is prophesying. He's saying that Lazarus, is at the end of this, is not going to be dead. Now, because we already know what happens in chapter 11, you know he dies. You know he's going to rise again. We already know uh, the end, but put yourself into this moment. Do the disciples know that? No. The disciples do not know that Lazarus is going to die and that he is going to rise again. They just know he's on the brink of death. So put yourself in their sandals. Put yourself in that moment and hear what Jesus says. He says this illness does not lead to death. So what are you thinking? You're thinking, oh, well, he's going to get better. It's not quite as bad as Mary and Martha uh, are saying in their letter to us, but, but he's going to be fine. He tells them this so that after the fact they can see the prophecy, so that they can recognize it for what it is. But in the moment, blinders are on. They don't, they don't get it. Uh, he, Jesus gives the purpose statement for what's going to happen right here in verse 4, the second part of it. It's for the glory of God. Okay. Again, put yourself in that moment. This is not going to end in Lazarus' death. It's for the glory of God. So that means he must be really, really sick right now, but God's going to heal him. Woohoo! We get to see it again. 
This purpose statement is very similar to what Jesus says in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the one I referenced just a moment ago. The, blind, the man who was born blind and been blind all of his life, but then Jesus heals him. Uh, in, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 9, we read this. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That same theme that, that the way we naturally think is so often wrong. Pastor Nick said it very well. What would you say to your 20-year-old self? You got it all wrong, right? The disciples here have it all wrong. They assume that this man was born blind because he was going to be a terrible sinner in his life or because his parents were just awful sinners, uh, worse than normal. We're all sinners, but they must be worse than normal somehow, and so that's why he was cursed with this blindness and Jesus says no no he was born blind that the glory of God might be shown in him it's the same purpose he's given here with Lazarus Lazarus is going to die and and in a way Jesus actually tells them that but he's going to rise again and the and the disciples just don't get it but they will and so he tells them all these things beforehand so that they can look back and see exactly what he meant by it. You know, we are consumed with avoiding discomfort and pain and prolonging life and quality of life as long as we can, right? Isn't that what we do? We talked about that a little bit yesterday. But God uses pain and death. He uses them so that we'll grow in our hunger for him. Jesus, Jesus knew what was going on. He knew that uh, it, it, by the time we get to chapter 11, uh, Jesus is only uh, at most months away from being killed, more like weeks. Uh, he knows that his death is imminent. The disciples, they know that the Jewish people are against him. They know that he has a, a bounty on his head, uh, and they're concerned for his safety. And oftentimes we can be like the disciples in being so concerned of, over safety that we miss what God's doing. In verse 8, uh, the disciples said, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. Are you really going to go back? Do you really want to go there and have to deal with that? We're safe here. So just like our concern for health and safety, the disciples were too. And Jesus responds to that with a little, uh, just a very brief parable in verses 9 and 10. In saying, are there not 12 hours in the day, he's not making some scientifically poor reference to how many hours of sunlight we have. What he's basically saying is, is there not two periods of the day? One is light and one is dark. Right now, you're in the light, but darkness is coming. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Who's the light of this world? He's talking about himself. He's saying, you've got the light right now. But you won't always have that. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Uh, it's a good thing there are people smarter than I am out there and that they write books and that I can read them. Because uh, there was one author that uh, pointed out some things in the Gospel of John that I just would never in my lifetime have come up with. And this is one of those things. If you were to go through the Gospel of John, in fact, 
uh, maybe make that your next, uh, your next reading chunk, that you're just going to start reading through John and go all the way through. The next time you read through the Gospel of John, pay attention to every time John makes a reference to uh, the time of day uh, or the time of year. When John talks about the time of day or the time of year, uh, he is always referencing more than just the time of day and the time of year. Here's, here's an example. We know what happens in John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Right. Now, most of the time, John doesn't reference times of day and seasons. But when he does, it also references the spiritual condition of what's going on. Was Nicodemus in darkness or in light? He was in darkness. He did not understand what salvation was. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. In John chapter 10, John tells us that uh, the, time, the, the, the time was the, the Feast of Dedication, and he notes it was winter. Well, the Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. Someone tell me, when has Hanukkah ever not been in winter? It's always winter. It's always in December. He's not saying it because, uh, because the, the readers didn't know when Hanukkah was. He's saying it because spiritually, the people that Jesus was talking to were cold. When Judas received the morsel of bread in chapter 13, it was night. But they're not all dark, and they're not all cold, are they? Because when did they find the empty tomb? Early in the morning. That's John chapter 20, verse 1. The very next chapter, John 21. Uh, we saw the skit the other day of Jesus and Peter. That was referencing that passage of Scripture. Uh, Jesus meets up with the disciples, and he basically recommissions Peter. And, and, and in verse 3 of chapter 21, it says that uh, it was... Uh, at that time, day was breaking. Uh, those are all the instances in John where he refers to time of day or season. And guess what? Every time he does it, he is referring also to the spiritual condition. Is there a lot of weight to put on that? No. But it's interesting because John is very, very subtle in some of the things that he is, is doing. He's just a magnificent writer. Uh, some, some biblical writers are just very blunt. John is not that guy. Uh, he's much more... Uh, I'd call it poetic. He, he's not writing poetry, but he, he uses the imagery. That's why John chapter 1, the first few verses, and 1 John chapter 1, the first few verses, are some of my favorite passages just because of the, the way he describes our Savior. Anyway, those who are walking in the light, doing what God wants to have done, as, he, as Jesus explains in this little two-verse parable, uh, don't need to fear the dangers around him. What he's saying is, right now it's light. Right now it's light because I, your Savior, am here. I don't need to fear the people in Jerusalem or in Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. I don't need to fear those people that want to kill me because my time has not yet come. I don't have to fear because it is now the light. The danger that the disciples reminded of him were in fact real, but following what God wanted meant that Jesus had no reason to fear. He knew that God wanted him to go when he wanted him to go. There was no reason for him to fear. He quickly moves past this little teaching opportunity of the events at hand and, and tells them what had happened. He just flat out says, Lazarus has died. Now to you and me, it might seem a, a little bit cruel that Jesus waited two days. 
he heard that Lazarus was very ill, and instead of just getting up and hightailing it over to Bethany, he just waits for two days. We might think that's a little cruel. Uh, in fact, uh, as a pastor, when someone calls and says that they're in the hospital with the runny nose, if you're not there in like seven minutes, man, you are too slow. Jesus waited two days, and he was on deathbed, right? Actually, if you look at the time it took for the message to get to Jesus and the time that it took for Jesus to get to Bethany, the fact of the matter is, is Lazarus was probably already dead by the time they got the message. Uh, because uh, remember, when Jesus gets to the tomb, our passage tells us a little bit later that Lazarus had been dead for four days and Martha said what? It stinketh in the King James Version. Four days. So he'd been dead four days by the time Jesus actually gets there, and, and Jesus had only waited two days. So in all reality, by the time they got the message, Lazarus was probably already dead. We'll talk more about the significance of the four days tomorrow. Uh, in talking to the disciples, Jesus uses the euphemism of sleep to refer to death, uh, which is very common in their culture, much like we would say uh, someone has passed away. It's just a little nicer way of saying uh, that someone has died. But because they don't understand, he has to become a little more crass in how he, he says it. Uh, so in verse 14, he tells them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Again, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. What are you thinking? Wait, Lazarus has died, and you're glad you weren't there? That doesn't make any sense. You loved Lazarus. You love his family. Why would you be glad that you couldn't be there? He gives us the explanation. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. The purpose of, gospel, of the Gospel of John is so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, that we would believe in Him, and that through that we would have life. The disciples, they believe some things about Jesus, but they're not fully there yet. And a lot of that is the Holy Spirit blinding their eyes so that after the resurrection they can look back and see it all. But uh, they, they don't get it. They're not, they're not full-on believers yet. And, and so look at Thomas. Look at his response in verse 16. Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we can just die with him. <laughs> that cracks me up. I mean, some of you are still sleeping. That's fine. But that cracks me up. Let's go with you, Lord. We'll just die with you. You're going to die. We might as well die too. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap. We refer to him as Doubting Thomas. Why? Because after the resurrection, when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, he was missing. And then the disciples are telling him about this crazy thing. Jesus was here. And Thomas like, I, you know, I'm not sure that I, I can believe that unless I actually put my hands <laughs> in the wound, see him and, and feel him, if I handle him. So he gets a bad rap for being a doubter. But the reality is, that's unfair. Uh, because he was committed in this passage. It's like, you know what? I'm kind of scared. I know that the Jews want to kill you. I know that if I'm with you, I'm probably going to die. But I trust you enough. I'm committed enough to you that let's go with you. Let's just follow you and we'll go die too. It's okay. We're going to continue reading in our passage, beginning in verse 17. 
Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Pause right here. Uh, first of all, we saw that Jesus' love did not prevent tragedy. Secondly, Jesus' love did not prevent sorrow. Those go hand in hand, I know. Uh, the tragedy of Lazarus' death was not prevented even though Jesus loved him. The sorrow of Mary and Martha was not prevented even though Jesus loved them. We find Mary seated at home. Uh, that was the tradition of mourning at that time. Uh, they, would, they would have a, a seat in the house that the, the bereaved would sit in, and then the people would come and offer their condolences, much in one way similar to the way we would have a, a wake or visitation today. Uh, we would come and, and offer our condolences. Now, um, we'll talk a little more about this tomorrow. Uh, the way that they mourned was a little more uh, vocal than the way we mourn. Again, that's for tomorrow. Uh, but that's where we find Mary. A and perhaps her sorrow was compounded by the fact that she, like Martha, knew that Jesus could have prevented it. In fact, Mary's going to say it later, too. Martha has said it here. If, if you'd have been here, Lord, you could have stopped this. A and Mary repeats it later. Uh, it it's much like a person who is mortally injured in an accident. If paramedics had just gotten there a few minutes earlier, they could have saved him. Jesus, if you'd have come just, just a few days earlier, if you could have been here when he died, he wouldn't have died. But I don't see that, that statement of Martha as really an accusation. Lord, you should have been here. I don't see that at all. I believe that she was just confident that, that Jesus could have done that. She had seen enough of the things that Jesus had done. She had heard enough of the things that Jesus had said that she knew Jesus could have prevented that. So this, this isn't really a statement of accusation. It's a, it's a statement of faith. It's a statement of confidence that, that Jesus had power over this illness. And her faith extends beyond that as well. Look at, see what she says in verse 22. She says, even now, I know that if you ask the Father, He'll do anything for you. She's saying, if you ask God to raise Him up, I think He'll listen to you. And yet, as much as Martha has faith, she still doesn't fully understand, does she? Because Jesus says, Lazarus will rise again. And what does she say? Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> Sometime in the distant future, I know he'll rise again. That's not what Jesus was saying. <laughs> Jesus was saying, Lazarus is going to rise today. Well, not in our session. You have to come back tomorrow for that. Um, Jesus' love does not prevent tragedy or sorrow, but Jesus' love does provide hope. And here's the hope that Jesus gives to Martha. Verse 25. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha's confession of truth here in verse 27 is a clear statement of saving faith. She knew who he was. Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Christ. By the way, Christ and Messiah are the same term, just different languages. He, he is the one who God sent into the world to redeem the world. She says, I believe you're the one. I know that you are. She understood what Isaiah 53 said. Isaiah 53 told her that she was a sinner. She didn't have Romans 3 yet, but she had Isaiah 53. Let me read this for you. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're all sinners. Each one of us have turned to go and do our own thing. That's what Isaiah was saying. But in spite of our rebellion, because that's what in very nice terms Isaiah was describing, he was describing cosmic rebellion, our rebellious attitude towards the God of creation. Despite our rebellion, God has taken our sins and placed it on that one. And that one, Martha understood to be Jesus Christ. She didn't have the Romans road that we have, but she had the gospel, and she demonstrates that she knows that it is true. She knew that she was a sinner. She believed the promises of God. She knew that without a doubt, Jesus was the fulfillment of these promises that she knew from what we would call the Old Testament, from her Bible. She knew that Jesus was the fulfillment and that God promised to take her sin and give it to him. Now, she didn't fully understand how that was going to work yet. That's okay. She believed what she knew. Let me ask you, do you have that same confidence? Do you have that same confidence that Martha had, that, that even though she was a sinner, that somehow God was going to take care of it? Do you have the confidence that Jesus is the one who took care of your sin? If you're not, if you're even slightly unsure of your salvation, come talk to me or Pastor Steve or Pastor Sam or Pastor Nick or Maybe your parents. I mean, there's some older, older children in here. That's what I want to say. Because you're still a child, right? You're still a child, right? Yeah, you're not going to. Okay. The point here, Jesus' love provides hope. Martha had hope. Now, Martha's in a unique situation. <laughs> she has hope in an eternal solution even though Jesus is telling her there's going to be a solution today. We don't always have that same situation. She knew that she would be reunited with Lazarus in, in that last day. The hope that she had is a very real hope that any believer walking through tragedy can have. This is not a, a wishful thinking pie in the sky. Oh, I wish that I could be reunited with my loved one. No, it's a confident assurance that what Jesus has said, stating that he is the resurrection and the life, 
That anyone who believes in him, even though we die in this world, we have eternal life. This, this biblical form of the word hope is not the way that we casually use it. When we casually use the word hope, uh, it's like my son saying, well, I hope I get a dune buggy for Christmas. <laughs> not on your life. Not happening. That is a, a wishful thinking hope. The hope that Scripture talks about is a hope that has confidence in it because God has declared He will do it. The statement in verses 25 and 26 is such an awesome statement. Jesus is declaring to Martha, He's declaring to us, that He has power over death. And that by faith, not by works, not by uh, being born into the right family, not by having the, the right attendance record in Sunday school, but by faith, death will not be the final story in her life. It will not be the final story in our lives either. This is the gospel. This is the good news that, that the, corruption, the corruption that sin has created in this world is not the final say. The corruption that causes us to physically die is not the final word. This is the good news. Martha is in for a big surprise. Lazarus is going to rise. And, you know, the disciples should have got it. Remember earlier in the passage, he says, Lazarus is asleep, but I go to wake him. Well, they didn't understand at first he was talking about death, but when he clarifies, no, Lazarus has died, they should have made the connection. Well, he says he was asleep, but I go to awake him. Then he, he must be, but they didn't. They didn't get it. That's okay. We're not going to be too hard on them for not getting it. We wouldn't have gotten it either. Martha's in for a big surprise. Lazarus is going to rise that day. But Jesus doesn't correct her in her understanding. Do you see how she responded? She goes, well, I know Lazarus is going to, is going to, uh, to rise, be resurrected at the end times. He doesn't correct that. He instead lets her be encouraged with the hope that she has. The hope that she has is that in, in the eternal sense of salvation. Folks, that's the same hope that we have. That's the same confidence that we can have to, to go and do whatever it is uh, that God has in store for us. And sometimes it's, it's God calling us to a dangerous place. In this situation, they knew that where they were going was a dangerous place, but he had confidence because he knew that it wasn't his time. Uh, we can have hope and confidence in going to a dangerous place. We can have hope and confidence through, through our darkest circumstances, as our big idea is today. Martha was in a very dark circumstance. She was. She knew that Jesus loved her. She knew that Jesus loved her family, her brother. And even though Jesus did love them, he sacrificed for them, didn't he? Or he will. Jesus did love them, but he didn't prevent the tragedy. He didn't prevent the sorrow. What he gave them instead was hope. The words of Jesus give hope. So, uh, Today, when you go out, there are going to be some greenish sheets out there. Grab one. There are some questions on here that will take you to the Word uh, to point out some things that were going on and then ask you to respond to it. And question two is related to question one. Question two is what scriptures will help you? Uh, so uh, the idea is to, to drive us into the Word because it's the words of Christ that give hope. It's the Word of God that gives hope. 
Hope doesn't come because I say it's there. Hope doesn't come because we have wishful thinking. Hope comes from the Word of God. So we're going to close in just a moment, and we'll dismiss you to go and spend some time together. Uh, The sheets should be on the back tables. Lord, thank you so much that you do give us hope, that the, the true words that you spoke to Martha are true to us as well, that you are the resurrection and the life, that death has no power over you, that ultimately by faith when we believe who you are and and what you have done for us by sending Jesus to die for our sins, when we accept that gift of salvation, knowing that he died, was buried, and rose again for us, that we have life eternal. And this physical body may die before the return of our Savior, but even so, we still have life. So Lord, help us to keep an eternal perspective in view Uh, much like Martha had. She was missing some stuff that were right in front of her, but she had the proper eternal perspective. Help us to have the proper eternal perspective as well so that we might find hope through all that we go through. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.